0: William Wordsworth, Preface to the Lyrical Ballads. The Lyrical Ballads by William Wordsworth and Samuel Taylor Coleridge was one of the most famous books of the Romantic era, and also one of the most famous collaborations in literary history. The original edition was published in 1798, but in 1800 a second edition was published that included a number of additional poems. Wordsworth also included a preface in his own name that outlines his theory of poetry. Although it is Wordsworth's preface, I like to approach this by comparing what both Wordsworth and Coleridge had to say about the plan for the Lyrical Ballads project because the larger project was a collaboration. While Wordsworth was the more prolific of the two poets in terms of volume of output, I think that Coleridge's influence was probably greater than Wordsworth might want to admit. So, let's begin by comparing the two poets' plan for the lyrical ballads. In P- Wordsworth's view, as outlined in the preface, the objective was, quote, "...to choose incidents and situations from common life and to relate or describe them throughout as far as was possible in a selection of language really used by men." and at the same time to throw over them a certain coloring of imagination, whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual way. Coleridge's view, writing of this decision nearly two decades later, refers to his frequent discussions with his friend on, "...the two cardinal points of poetry," The power of exciting the sympathy of the reader by a faithful adherence to the truth of nature, and the power of giving the interest of novelty by the modifying colors of the imagination. The thought suggested itself that a series of poems might be composed of two sorts. In the one, the incidents and agents were to be, in part at least, supernatural, and the excellence aimed at was to consist in the interesting of the affections by the dramatic truth of such emotions, as would naturally accompany such situations, supposing them real. For the second class, subjects were to be chosen from ordinary life, The characters and incidents were to be such as will be found in every village and its vicinity where there is a meditative and feeling mind to seek after them or to notice them when they present themselves. And that's from Coleridge's Biographia Literaria, book 14. Note that Coleridge discusses two sorts of poems. Wordsworth, however, omits Coleridge's entirely in fact, when the second edition of the lyrical ballads was published, The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, Coleridge's major contribution to the project that had been the first poem in the volume, was pushed down to 23rd place. What's more, while the first edition of 1798 had been published anonymously, the second edition of 1800 and the third edition of 1802 list only Wordsworth's name on the title page, so Coleridge's joint authorship is not even acknowledged. Wordsworth alludes to Coleridge in his preface, though not by name, when he states that, quote, for the sake of variety and from a consciousness of my own weakness, I was induced to request the assistance of a friend who furnished me with the poems of The Ancient Mariner, The Foster Mother's Tale, The Nightingale, The Dungeon, and the poem entitled Love, end quote. Returning to Coleridge's description of the two sorts of poems in the lyrical ballads, the first type consisted of the supernatural in an attempt to make it seem in some way real, or at least to allow us to suspend our disbelief because, while the incidents themselves might seem supernatural, the characters and their behavior would seem real. In Coleridge's words, the excellent aimed at was to consist in the interesting of the affections by the dramatic truth of such emotions as would naturally accompany such situations, supposing them real. And in fact, this formulation corresponds to Coleridge's contributions such as The rhyme of the Ancient Mariner. The second type or sort of poetry was based on the ordinary, but using the power of imagination to make it interesting. In Wordsworth's words, these poems would take, quote, incidents and situations from common life and to relate or describe them in a selection of language really used by men, and at the same time to throw over them a certain coloring of imagination whereby ordinary things should be presented to the mind in an unusual way. This would correspond to Wordsworth's contributions to the volume, but he seems to have forgotten to mention Coleridge's contributions and the other type entirely. To put these two types of poems in the simplest possible terms, the two goals were to make the real seem strange or interesting and to make the strange seem real. So what we really have is two opposites being brought together to produce something new, which is exactly what William Blake was fond of doing in his concept of contraries, as in Blake's Songs of Innocence and Experience and The Marriage of Heaven and Hell. In the preface to the lyrical ballads, Wordsworth gives his views on poetry, on poets, on poetic languages, language, and poetic subjects. He tells us that he wants to use incidents from common life as poetic subjects, but he also wants to use simpler language than was typical of poetry in the past. He says, Low and rustic life was generally chosen because in that situation, the essential passions of the heart find a better soil in which they can attain their maturity, are less under restraint, and speak a plainer and more emphatic language, because in that situation... Our elementary feelings exist in a state of greater simplicity and consequently may, may be more accurately contemplated and more forcibly communicated. The language, too, of these men is adopted, purified indeed from what appear to be its real defects, from all lasting and rational causes of dislike or disgust, end quote. In other words, Wordsworth emphasizes so called low and rustic life as the source of his poetic subjects, plainer and more emphatic language, and the simplicity that he claims exists in the rural state. Note that he does say that he will purify this common language. He argues for few personifications in poetry, no abstract ideas, and claims that the language in many good poems is already prose like his real goal was to get away from the more formal and stylized poetic language of the 18th century with its elaborate allusions to Greek mythology and classical literature that were common to much poetry of that time. Coleridge actually takes exception to this characterization or this idealization of rustic language in his Biographia Literaria. Coleridge comments that A rustic's language, purified from all provincialism and grossness, and so far reconstructed as to be made consistent with the rules of grammar, which are in essence no other than the laws of universal logic applied to psychological materials, will not differ from the language of any other man of common sense, however learned or refined he may be, except as far as the notions... Which the rustic has to convey are fewer and more indiscriminate. End quote. Coleridge goes on to take exception to two of Wordsworth's claims. The first is to his friend's characterization that he writes in The Real Language of Men. Coleridge replies that. Every man's language varies according to the extent of his knowledge, the activity of his faculties, and the depth or quickness of his feelings. The language of Algernon Sidney differs not at all from that which every well-educated gentleman would wish to write. Neither one nor the other differ half as much from the general language of cultivated society as the language of Mr. Wordsworth's homeliest composition differs from that of a common peasant." End quote. In other words, Coleridge is arguing that Wordsworth's language is not so much that of the rustic peasant as Wordsworth would wish. At the same time, Coleridge is in every way very positive about Wordsworth's poetry. He's just taking exception to Wordsworth's claims that he is writing in the language of ordinary people. The most famous concept in Wordsworth's preface is his definition of poetry, which he articulates a couple of times in slightly different ways. Early on, he asserts that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. And a little later in the preface, he states this a little more expansively when he says, I have said that poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings. It takes its origin from emotion recollected in tranquility, the emotion is contemplated till by a species of reaction the tranquility gradually disappears and an emotion similar to that which was before the subject of contemplation is gradually produced and does itself actually exist in the mind, end quote. So there are two parts to this equation. Poetry is the spontaneous overflow of powerful feelings, but the second part is that these emotions are recollected in tranquility and are echoed or recreated in the mind of the poet. One other famous passage that I want to point out is Wordsworth's criticism of certain popular novels in which he says... The most effective of these causes are the great national events which are daily taking place, and the increasing accumulation of men in cities, where the uniformity of their occupations produces a craving for extraordinary incident which the rapid communication of intelligence hourly gratifies. To this tendency of life and manners, the literature and theatrical exhibitions of the country have conformed themselves." The invaluable works of our elder writers—I had almost said the works of Shakespeare and Milton— are driven into neglect by frantic novels, sickly and stupid German tragedies, and deluges of idle and extravagant stories in verse. When I think upon this degrading thirst after outrageous stimulation, I am almost ashamed to have spoken of the feeble effort— with which I have endeavored to counteract it. This passage refers, among other things, to the Gothic genre, which he characterizes as frantic novels, sickly and stupid German tragedies, and the degrading thirst after outrageous stimulation. Wordsworth then proceeds to disparage the practice of personification of abstract ideas, arguing that he will not present personifications in his poetry, He cites a sonnet by Thomas Gray and highlights particular passages that he feels have value as opposed to those that do not, and then moves on to discuss the question, what is a poet? Here he has very lofty ideas indeed. The poet writes under one restriction only, namely, that of the necessity of giving immediate pleasure to a human being possessed of that information which may be expected from him, not as a lawyer, a physician, a mariner, an astronomer, or a natural philosopher, but as a man, quote. In other words, the poet is a kind of every man. Wordsworth goes on to contrast the man of poetry and the man of science, saying that, "...the knowledge both of the poet and the man of science is pleasure." But the knowledge of the one cleaves to us as a necessary part of our existence, our natural and unalienable inheritance. The other is a personal and individual acquisition, slow to come to us, and by no habitual and direct sympathy connecting us with our fellow beings. The man of science seeks truth as a remote and unknown benefactor. He cherishes and loves it in his solitude the poet, singing a song in which all human beings join with him, rejoices in the spirit of truth as our visible friend and hourly companion. Poetry is the breath and finer spirit of all knowledge. It is the impassioned expression which is in the countenance of all science." And so on. In other words, Wordsworth is speaking here about the universality of poetry, going on to say that Poetry is the first and last of all knowledge. It is as immortal as the heart of man. He has quite a high opinion of poetry, and as he is himself a poet, of poets as well. Finally, I want to turn to the words of one of Wordsworth's most prominent critics. One of the famous publications of the time was the Edinburgh Review. In 1802, a critic named Francis Jeffrey wrote a review called The New Poetry, in which he was sharply critical of Wordsworth. It is interesting to note that Jeffrey is actually more critical of the preface and of Wordsworth's theories of poetry than the poetry itself. For example, early in his review, Jeffrey states that, The author who is now before us belongs to a sect of poets that has established itself in this country within these 10 or 12 years and is looked upon, we believe, as one of its chief champions and apostles. The particular doctrines of this sect, it would not perhaps be very easy to explain, but that they are dissenters from the established systems in poetry and criticism is admitted and proved indeed by the whole tenor of their compositions. Jeffrey uses a number of religious metaphors, such as a sect of poets, one of its chief champions and apostles, the particular doctrines of this sect, and dissenters. That last term referring to those who were not members of the Church of England and chose to worship outside the official state church. Most of Jeffrey's criticisms can be summarized this way. He argues that Wordsworth and Coleridge's new poetry isn't really new, but takes many of its ideas from Rousseau, from Goethe, and from other Germans. He complains about Wordsworth's system, Now, the word system for a child of the Enlightenment, such as Geoffrey, really connotes something artificial or false, not faithfully representing the real world, but imposing an order that is not there. Not like today, when we love systems and systems thinking. Geoffrey argues that Wordsworth's use of low and rustic language is bad enough, but his choice of poetic subjects is his real offense, Jeffrey argues that art should quote, excite admiration and delight, not take their models from what is ordinary but from what is excellent, end quote.